This is Guns and Butter. And, of course, the relation of all this to, um, to the political economy of the American system is what we learned in Vietnam and then what we learned again in, in uh, the post-9-11 era is that once you have a foreign war going on, your entire social reform agenda, your entire human development agenda, your capital investment in urban mass transit or health care or housing, that all goes out the window, right? You... <laughs> I have to refer to the title of your your program, right? Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson promised guns and butter, and it turns out that he couldn't do it. It was only guns, and that then was the the the, the collapse ultimately of the great society and the anti-poverty program was not because they didn't work, but just once the once the guns began to shoot, the money was all sucked up into the uh, Vietnam War, and the the programs were underfunded. So. We cannot do this again. Right? The, the, the struggle against foreign wars is the struggle against austerity and, uh, and vice versa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Political Economy of the American System, Part 2. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, your guide through the worst financial crisis in human history. 9-11 synthetic terror made in the USA, Obama, the unauthorized biography, and co-author of George Bush, the unauthorized biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity. Webster Tarpley recently hosted a two-and-one-half-day seminar, The Political Economy of the American System, in Silver Spring, Maryland, sponsored by the Tax Wall Street Party and the United Front Against Austerity. On today's program, we discuss this economic seminar and hear an excerpt on the post-World War II U.S. presidents. Webster Tarpley, you've spoken about the Greek Syriza Party. I'm looking at their 40-point plan. It certainly sounds very similar to what you've been proposing all these years. It says the Daily Bulletin of Italy's Communist Refoundation Party published today the apparently official program of the Greek coalition of the left Syriza. Here are the 40 points of the Syriza program. I notice point number 40 is closure of all foreign bases in Greece and withdrawal from NATO. Yes, this is the the program that they ran on in 2012, okay? Okay. This is is important because that's where Syriza made the leap from being a, well, you know, a, a, a minor party to becoming a major party. In other words, in 2012, Syriza made the leap to being the main opposition, the main alternative to the pro-austerity, new democracy party of, uh, of Samaras. Now, I don't have this in front of me, but, uh, it, Bonnie, if you want to, um, certainly the one about, about getting out of NATO, right, uh, NATO has outlived its usefulness. If you see what NATO did to Libya, for example, taking a, a, a functioning country that was uh, the leading African country in the United Nations human development uh, schedule, right? They were they were outscoring, you know, Ukraine, another 
other places and reducing that to a failed state. You see how sinister NATO is. And the Greeks, of course, have a special reason to be um, wary and, and, uh, and uh, suspicious of NATO because in 1967, NATO sponsored a military coup by a group of fascist colonels, and that went on until 1974. And the big irony is that 1974 is when Alexis Tsipras, the current prime minister, was born. So he lives his entire life in the post-coup uh, environment, and he's interested in, uh, in, in rolling back NATO. And that's perfectly uh, understandable, and I think everybody should support it. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible heritage, right? and, and whatever it was, that was forfeit on the basis of this coup by the, uh, by the colonel. But here, the other one that I would point you to is, if you have the 40 points in front of you, um, the, the number three is the one that I would really point. Is that right? The one that says the European Central Bank has to finance the projects proposed by governments? No, they've gotten them all mixed up. So it's not that number. It says, demand the European Union to change the role of the European Central Bank so that it finances states and programs of public investment. Now, that's what you've been talking about with regard to the Fed. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's essentially what, what, what I've been saying about the Federal Reserve, is if you're in Europe and you want to get anywhere, and it's even more essential in, uh, in Europe because under the European Union and the European Central Bank specifically, these countries no longer create their own currency. In other words, the, the Greek Central Bank is, uh, is not the source of, uh, of currency creation and credit creation. It's the, it's the European Central Bank. Uh, and that can have advantages. But in order to make it work, you've got to organize a front. It's going to come down to Southern European and Peripheral European. In other words, the uh, Portugal, Italy... Ireland, uh, Greece, Spain, these countries have got to get together and they've got to challenge the uh, exorbitant and absurd and obsolete dominance over the European Central Bank by Germany alone. Right? We've seen this, this extremely excruciating, painful phase where Chancellor Merkel of Germany and her finance minister, Schäuble, have imposed this crushing uh, we would call it genocidal austerity on the, uh, the, these countries that have gotten into trouble because they've come under attack through derivatives. In other words, Greece uh, was going along okay, as, as okay as anybody else in a depression. When uh, Wall Street, right, there was this famous idea dinner that was written up in the uh, Wall Street Journal at the time. They said, look, we can't, we can't attack the euro directly because it's a trillion euros a day and that's too much for anybody to attack directly. But what we can do is go into the small, narrow, illiquid markets for the Greek government bonds, and we can attack them, said Wall Street, with, with our uh, credit default swaps, and we can create a crisis, and that's what they did. And then in order to bail out, essentially, the banks, right, Deutsche Bank above all, the Germans have now uh, imposed this, uh, this austerity, right? And the, the big question is, uh, is, is that going to be allowed to go on? So the, the imperative is for Greece to get uh, a front, right, a, a, uh, an alliance of anti-austerity countries and indeed anti-derivative countries to say we, we cannot have this, this austerity. It's, uh, it's counterproductive, right? Everybody is talking about deflation in the world, right? Deflation... 
essentially means depression, right? That's the, the traditional form of an economic uh, depression or crisis is deflation. And they say, well, why is there deflation? Because there's no demand, that there's no demand, so people don't invest, they don't hire, economic activity goes down, down, down. Why is there no demand? Well, there are two reasons. One is that in Europe, you have this crazy austerity. That has destroyed demand, right? If you cut uh, wages, you cut uh, government spending, you do all these things that are supposedly going to balance your budget, they never do. And that was no surprise, right? Nobody has ever balanced a budget by cutting. But what you do cut is, is demand, and that means an economic slowdown, and that's why the price of oil has gone down, uh, the, the, the demand for iron ore and copper and all sorts of other things is, uh, is drying up. Uh, and then on the U.S. side, it's the sequester and similar uh, austerity measures imposed by the reactionary Republicans. So um, you've got to break out of that. And in order to do it, Greece alone will not be enough. Uh, they, they're going to need international support, and I, I would certainly recommend that, uh, that this, this is for people of goodwill need to support uh, Syriza and, and what they're doing. Let me also point out that when the United Front Against Austerity was founded in New York City on the eve of Superstorm, Superstorm Sandy, right? this was uh, the last weekend in October of 2012, right, right before that election, we actually had an address uh, sent in to our conference by Yanis Varoufakis, who is currently now the finance minister of Greece, and he's been uh, quite active. Right? He's done some pretty spectacular things. Uh, last week, the Dutch finance minister, Gisselblum, came to Athens as an austerity enforcer, right? as an inspector, right? that he's going to audit the books and make sure that enough people have been fired and that wages have been cut and that, that pensions have been cut and health care demolished. And Varoufakis met him and he said, we're not going to even talk to you. We've decided that the Troika is illegal, that it's illegal under European law. The Troika, of course, being the International Monetary Fund, that worldwide vulture institution located here in Washington, D.C., and the European Central Bank, right, the home of the Eurogarchs and the Eurocrats, uh, and they have obviously failed in whatever they, their mission was supposed to be, and the European Commission, which, uh, well, until recently was uh, was dominated by some pretty reactionary people from, from Portugal uh, in particular, right? Barroso, the head of it. So Greece now says, we don't think that you, the Troika, are legal under the Treaty of Rome, under the founding instrument of the European uh, community and then the European Union, right? You don't have any status. So we're not going to talk to you. And that was, uh, you could, if you've seen that on TV, right? Quite a shock. And the Dutch finance minister, uh, you know, he, he tried to snub Varoufakis. There was a sort of half-hearted handshake, and he was already walking towards the door, leaving Varoufakis with his hand out and uh, quizzically looking at him. So uh, it's a big fight, and uh, there will be ups and downs. There will be disappointments, right? You can't, it's not going to be a linear march to victory. It depends on what happens in some of these other countries. Uh, and in particular, I would say Italy would be a key, right? If Italy can somehow field a, uh, an anti-IMF, anti-austerity alternative, that's, uh, that's going to be uh, decisive because the, the reasoning in, um, in uh, Brussels and Frankfurt is uh, if Greece is driven out, 
of the euro, uh, they can still survive. But then if it's Spain and or Italy, then, then they can't survive. So they're going to have to be reasonable and, and negotiate. And let me just point out one other thing. A lot of uh, leftists and, and indeed others, libertarians in the United States, think that the euro is automatically used to drive the value of that currency down to virtually nothing. And that would mean a tremendous uh, shock for the standard of living of the Greeks. They might be able to export, but they wouldn't be able to eat at that rate. So this would be a, this would be a terrible, terrible thing. And the same really goes for Portugal or Spain or Italy. If you went back to the peseta or the Italian lira, they would be attacked by speculators. And at the same time, if these other economies were no longer in the euro, the reverse would happen to Germany and the Netherlands and a few others. In other words, the German mark, if you had it, would be driven into intergalactic space. Uh, it would be you know, five marks to a dollar or ten marks to a dollar, and at that rate they could not export anything. They would be uh, essentially driven into deflation with a vengeance that way. So all in all, the uh, the current makeup of the euro is, is certainly not ideal, but it's probably the lesser evil. And the goal of London and Wall Street in looking at the euro is to break it up and feast on the ruins. In other words, to uh, essentially uh, smash it and then uh, sell off the pieces and uh, and loot it and sack it and uh, and exploit it. So, so you're saying that these currency wars would escalate if the euro went away and these countries went back to their sovereign currencies because of the buildup of derivatives in the financial system. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Political Economy of the American System, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Um, the idea being that you're, you, know, you can see, uh, for example, that at the beginning I had this parade of puppet presidents, right? So you want to see them all from, from Harry Truman of the Ku Klux Klan and the Pendergast machine in uh, in Missouri, all the way down to uh, to George W. Bush and uh, Clinton and uh, and Obama. And where do they come from? And that's actually a clip that we'll play from the beginning of your political economy seminar, a brief historical overview of post World War II presidents of the United States. Right, and and the the point of that is once again. Um, it's not automatic for the president to have power. He's got to fight for it. This is an oligarchy, right? In the 9-11 era, you know, 10 years ago, I hope we made the point that there is this invisible government, parallel government, uh, deep state, whatever you want to call it. It's largely the projection of Wall Street power into the Washington government with uh, private networks that are loyal to Wall Street and not to the Constitution. So you got to take that on. And... Uh, I, I would say, uh, look, Obama, right? You want to see some targeting. Um, when you had all those people running across the White House lawn or a, uh, an unknown person with a gun in the same elevator with Obama or the guy running up the front uh, steps of the, uh, of the White House, you have to ask yourself, what is that? Those are warnings. That's the invisible government talking to Obama, you know, reminding him we're all around you. And what they seem to want at this point is the bombing of Syria. They want to bomb Assad. Uh, and that's the particular combination of this guy, 
General Allen, the ISIS czar inside the government, and his uh, backup outside the government is his his twin, General David Petraeus, the former head of the uh, CIA. And it gets you down to things like, um, what was Benghazi, right? The, uh, the right-wingers have been talking about Benghazi, right? This was a terrible thing. They want to blame that on Obama. That's ridiculous. Uh, Benghazi in September of 2012, right, right before the November 2012 presidential election, that was an attempted October surprise, except it was an October surprise in the era of early voting. So if you want to have your October surprise these days, you've got to have it in September. And sure enough, they had it on September 11th. So you have this attack by groups in Libya that are uh, traditionally CIA assets. So they start attacking this compound uh, with Ambassador Stevens and some other State Department people in it in Benghazi, Libya. And uh, the question then is, why are there no aircraft? Why, why don't uh, the special forces or something intervene? Uh, it is not the case that air, air bases are very far away. There's a base on the island of Sicily, Sigonella. It's a very famous one. Uh, it's about an hour and a half away, maybe an hour away from from the coast of uh, Libya. So they, they could have had airplanes in there. Uh, and, of course, that could have been accompanied by other other forces. And they were uh, there was a group of heavily armed CIA paramilitaries at a safe house about a mile away from Benghazi. So the question would be, General David Petraeus, head of the CIA, why didn't you order forces to intervene? Did you order them to stand down? And they probably did. And then the question would be to General Carter Ham. At that point, the head of the U.S. African Command, who controls that base in Sicily, why didn't you do something about that? So what you're left with is the idea that this was supposed to be the downfall of Obama and the installation of Mitt Romney as president. And I have to argue that uh, under Mitt Romney, we'd be much worse off. We'd probably already be at war with uh, Russia right now, and that would be a very bad uh, outcome. And I would also add that the... The, the pressure from the invisible government on Obama involves they want the bombing of Syria. There's a, there's a group in the ruling class that says, bomb Syria and you'll be bombing Russia at the same time so you can get the back door to a war with Russia by bombing Syria, and they seem to want this. And then there are others who say, confront uh, Putin directly in uh, Ukraine. And I would have to argue to everybody, this is incalculable folly. There is no vital U.S. interest in Ukraine, uh, quite the opposite, right? The people that have taken power in Ukraine seem to represent the continuation of the, uh, the, the, the institutions of the, the people who prospered under the Nazi occupation back during World War II, centered in the town of Lvov or Lemberg or whatever you want to call it in the uh, western uh, part of Ukraine. That's who's in charge now. Um, this is not a good group. You don't want to support them. And above all, the American people cannot stand a useless, futile, suicidal war with Russia, of all things, uh, in, in a place like uh, Ukraine. In other words, this is, uh, this is getting close to, uh, well, to, to a, a catastrophe. You, you can see the writing on the wall. Now, Obama you know, has been worn down. Uh, they want him to provide sophisticated weapons to Ukraine, this is absolute folly. 
uh, the people in Ukraine uh, are not trained to use them, and what they'll probably do is sell them to somebody in the Middle East, and then you'll you'll see them coming back again. So the the point is, a negotiated solution, a political solution, is indispensable. And the way you get that is to say to Russia, fine, we recognize that you have a sphere of interest around your borders, that you don't want hostile states on your borders. It's an old Russian demand, right? Ukraine and, and indeed Belarus would be the classic avenues of invasion, right, from Napoleon to the Swedes in the, in the previous century, right, down to the, the tragedies of, uh, of the 1940s. Uh, Russia, you have uh, a, a good case. You should have, you should be free from actively hostile states in your own area. The U.S., of course, does the same thing. So why not Russia too? And that means no NATO membership for Ukraine. Indeed, as we talked about before, better to break up NATO completely. This is now uh, far beyond any any useful life. But if you can't do that, at least don't have Ukraine join uh, NATO. So, right. So so. Uh, recognize that there is a vital Russian interest in these areas. And these two points, Syria and Ukraine, seem to be the two uh, obsessions of a, of a part of that ruling class that I was describing before. In other words, people who are um, mentally unbalanced, incapable of uh, calculating the results of what they recommend, sociopaths, uh, and so forth. So once again, we look forward to the 2016 presidential election. Now, the president is not automatically in the ruling class by any stretch, as I've been, as I've been arguing. But if you don't want to have a choice between Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush or something like this, or worse, Hillary Clinton or the union-busting Governor Walker of Wisconsin, well, then you, uh, you better get busy and create some kind of an alternative now in advance. So that was the idea of this course, right, to try to to try to get people uh, thinking in that, that direction and, above all, the program that it would take. You mentioned to me that there's a city in Ukraine that is now encircled by what? Ukrainian citizens of Russian descent? What is going on there? This is uh, the, the reason why we have this hysteria in Washington that you've got to send sophisticated weapons to the Ukrainian army, and it's got to be done immediately, right? The Republicans have thrown off, as we knew they would, right? The Republicans have thrown off this mantle of isolationism, and they're back as the war party, right, with a vengeance. Uh, uh, the Libertarians uh, have either capitulated or been pushed aside, so now it's the Republican war party, and unfortunately there's a, a large war party on the side of the, uh, of the Democrats. So here's what it is. It's a place called... Debaltsev, I'm, I'm not sure the pronunciation of this, but D-E-B-A-L-T-S-E-V-E. This is a town in Ukraine, and it is held by about 8,000 pro-Kiev forces, right, representing the post-coup government, right? There was a coup there about a year ago, and this is now the second generation. Elections held under that coup government, right, the, the current... Uh, uh, ahead of it, right, the chocolate king, Poroshenko, or as I call him, Pornoshenko. Uh, Debaltsev is now garrisoned by 8,000 pro-Kiev fighters, but they're surrounded. They're encircled by pro-Russian forces, and this is going to play out now. And I'm sure 
I suspect there's somebody like Susan Rice or maybe General Allen or maybe General Petraeus who are arguing for an immediate U.S. military intervention to try to save these uh, pro-Kiev fighters, right? A lot of them are militias, right? A lot of them are the right sector. A lot of them are these people who trace their their lineage back to Stepan Bandera, who is one of the figures under the... Uh, under the German rule there in the in the in the Second World War, so the Baltic is uh, it's like a salient and it's being cut off, and these forces are now pocketed and they're they're then going to be uh, captured and rounded up. Uh, there's no way that uh, some you know anti-tank missiles could could change this, but uh, this is the thing that has stimulated the, uh, the 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 war party in Washington into extreme hysterics. So, uh, again, I would uh, urge everybody, the watchword is not one soldier, not one penny for this uh, Ukrainian government. They are not an ally of the United States. They've never been. Uh, and it, it would simply be, it would be insane. It would be you know, lunacy to take on a commitment by the United States to defend that group of provocateurs and hotheads and extremists in Kiev, this makes absolutely no sense. Uh, much better to simply make a rational uh, accord, right? A modus vivendi, a deal with uh, with Putin that simply says, "Look, uh, we understand that because of your experiences, right? You've been invaded by Sweden, by Napoleon, by Germany, and others. Always across those territories, you have a good reason to want them." not to be actively hostile that's all they ask right not to be members of nato and not to not, not to have a political life which is dominated by the hatred of russia which is unfortunately what you have in ukraine these days so that's that i regard that as a vital interest of the uh, of the united states and of course the relation of all this to um, to the political economy of the american system is what we learned in vietnam and then what we learned again in, in uh, the post-9-11 era, is that once you have a foreign war going on, your entire social reform agenda, your entire human development agenda, your capital investment in urban mass transit or health care or housing, that all goes out the window, right? You, <laughs> I have to refer to the title of your, your program, right? Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson promised guns and butter, and it turned out that he couldn't do it. It was only guns. And that then was the, 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 the collapse, ultimately, of the great society. And the anti-poverty program was not because they didn't work, but just once the, once the guns began to shoot, the money was all sucked up into the uh, Vietnam War, and the, the programs were underfunded. So we cannot do this again. Right? The, the, the struggle against foreign wars is the struggle against austerity and, uh, and vice versa. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Political Economy of the American System, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let's hear that clip on the post-World War II presidents of the United States from your seminar, The Political Economy of the American System. Is there anything you'd like to say to introduce this segment? Just notice that the criteria of selection are all negative. In other words, it, it has to be somebody who cannot be um, an autonomous, uh, strong leader. In other words, what it reflects is the, the collective decision 
of the banker oligarchy that nobody like Franklin D. Roosevelt must ever be allowed close to the presidency. And uh, when Kennedy came along, they thought that he would be controllable through various uh, personal weaknesses that he had. But then they were stunned by the fact that he proved uh, not to be controllable in that way. And then we saw the terrible uh, result. And all presidents are generally aware of this. And, and uh, some of them manage to, uh, to resist a little bit. Some of them manage to have at least moments of lucidity where they fight back. Uh, but generally speaking, it's been a very, very negative experience. And the problem is that the assumption by Wall Street, Wall Street thinks they should control the presidency, and they have a network implanted in the federal government across all the important agencies that, that tries to do that. And that's, uh, that's the plight of the United States. That's basically uh, politics or political economy 101, is that they get what they want much of the time, not all. Let's hear that clip. Now, we're going to do, we're going to attempt a tour de force here as usual. Hopefully not a tour de farce, but uh, here we go. We're going to try to go through the various post-war presidents and just show how the oligarchy used them. Here we have, of course, Truman. Truman. If you want to help me along, right, it's, it's, it's good. Uh, Harry S. Truman, member of the Ku Klux Klan, official of the Pendergast machine in uh, Missouri. Pendergast was indicted, put in jail. He knew that he could be indicted and be put in jail, too. He was chosen to get Henry Wallace off the ticket. Wallace was the one who wanted to avoid the Cold War. Don't want to deify him, but that's certainly true about Henry Wallace. This is the guy who started the Cold War in the service of uh, Sir Winston Churchill and the Churchill family. And uh, this was not necessary. There was no need to have the Cold War at this point. But he was a, uh, a rather pathetic little puppet. He was... Uh, subject to transports of rage. He would lose his temper and rave. And also, uh, he was a pedant. He, if you read his letters, he says, you know, this is the biggest thing since uh, Hercules and Agamemnon and Henry VIII. And he goes and he throws all this stuff out. He likes to make a parade of knowledge, which he really doesn't have. Now, who controlled him? I start with him because this is very well documented. On internal policy, we have Clark Clifford, later of power in the Democratic Party. There was a meeting, and Clark Clifford writes about this in his memoirs, there was a meeting uh, at least once a week of the people who ran Truman. Truman never realized that there was a meeting going on, but Clark Clifford was the chairman of that meeting. Foreign policy, it's Dean Acheson, and actually Dean Acheson mediates the influence of somebody I should have added, W. Averill Harriman of the Harriman banking house, right? Envoy by Roosevelt to Churchill to Stalin uh, to the Marshall Plan and so forth. So the outcome of this is the wrecking of the New Deal, the wrecking of the New Deal Roosevelt foreign policy, he would send troops to attack the base of the Democratic Party, right? He would send troops to attack striking steel workers, coal miners, and all the rest. Who do we have here? And? Dulles. Very good. Okay. So Eisenhower, not the worst person, but somewhat passive, weak president in many ways. During World War II, he had been the chairman of the board. 
And the result of the chairman of the board, I don't have a map here, but if you think this is Europe, under his chairman of the board approach, you had Montgomery going up here into the Netherlands, and you had Patton going down here towards Czechoslovakia. There's a big hole in the middle, and Hitler decided to attack in the middle. And if there had been a few more tanks of gasoline available for Germany, this entire Allied invasion would have been thrown back to the coast of the Channel. I suppose the Soviets would have come through about a year later, but that would have been the end of that. In other words, as a general, really not so good. Now, this guy is already a monster of iniquity in the sense that he, according to some accounts, either he, John Foster Dulles, or his brother, Alan Dulles, were present at the meeting of German industrialists and bankers who decided put Hitler into power. In other words, he's got a piece of that. The Sullivan and Cromwell law firm, okay, implicated in supporting Hitler. Now, of course, Kennedy, the example that proves the rule, right, the case that proves the exception that proves the rule, here he goes challenging the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Federal Reserve System, the Washington oligarchs, the Georgetown oligarchs, and on and on and on, and we know what the result was. And this was, of course, a conspiracy, what can we say? We can't avoid it just because this is somehow heretical. Uh, it's a conspiracy centered in the Central Intelligence Agency. It was essentially the plot, the Operation Mongoose, ostensibly to kill Castro, redirected against him. So there he is, uh, assassinated in, in 1963. His plan had been to break the CIA into a thousand pieces, and we should never forget that worthy goal. He was also uh, obviously persecuted by J. Edgar Hoover. So here's somebody whose whole administration is a process of freeing himself from bankrupt crackpot advisors, be it Curtis LeMay or, or others, right? the so-called executive committee or XCOM that tried to push him into World War III during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he said no. Johnson, um, in many ways, one of the more interesting of these figures, right? somewhat tragic. Uh, domestically, one of the very best that we've had since Roosevelt, right? Medicare, uh, Medicaid, uh, a host of positive things, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But he was profiled, and this is this awful woman, Doris Kearns Goodwin, right? She was chosen to give the speech at Gettysburg and the 150th anniversary of Gettysburg, and this, she bombed, right? This was widely resented because she didn't care about Gettysburg, Lincoln, Civil War, any of those issues, none of that. She's Doris Kearns Goodwin. She essentially became his confidant, and she writes in this book about how he would come to her room at night and want to talk to her. They would go back to his bedroom. She would get into his bed. He would sit there, and he would tell her, he would open up his soul to her. And basically his problem was a tremendous sense of inferiority, that he hadn't gone to the Harvard boutique. Can you imagine that? You're freaked out because you didn't go to Harvard? Harvard? What, are we nuts? <laughs> so uh, there he is. Um, and it has to do with his relations with his mother and his father. And his, I recommend this book. It really is revealing, unless she's edited the stuff out. Um, but here, what you see, therefore, is the psychological weakness 
that is played upon by these people in order to, uh, to secure uh, obedience. Now, of course, his problem also was tremendous impoverished uh, family story, brother died of tuberculosis, and also a Quaker. If you are a Quaker, you are an antinomian. It means that you think the law does not apply to the elect. And Quakers in particular have a theory, the early ones especially, the theory of the inner voice. We'll talk about inner voices later in the evening. Thing is, when you get an inner voice, you got to make sure who's at the other end of the line, <laughs> okay? Because in the terminology I'm going to try to teach in a minute, that could be a phone call from your preconscious or the Holy Spirit, or it could be from the id. <laughs> and if it's for the, from the id, you got to watch out, right? You know, don't take any tips on horses or stocks from the id. So he really <laughs> believed that he could do whatever he wants, right? He has this famous quote, if the president does it, it's not illegal. That is a parody of the Roman jurist Ulpian, the famous quod principi placuit vigorum legis habet. In other words, whatever pleases the prince has the force of law. That's what he thought, too. Um, however, perhaps in, in contradiction to what you think you know about him, he was overthrown by the CIA. There is no doubt. And they didn't do it because of his abuses. They did it for other reasons, among them to permanently weaken the institution of the presidency. Uh, and that was done by these CIA characters that you see, by James McCord, uh, by uh, Howard Hunt, right? Some of the most famous CIA people of the era were all involved in Watergate. And, of course, Bob Woodward was from the Office of Naval Intelligence, and the various people who revealed the tapes were from the FBI. So here's an example of a, a president who couldn't, he couldn't understand what was happening to him. And also... The Pentagon Papers, right? Daniel Ellsberg and so forth. And then Kissinger comes into his office. I got to do my Kissinger again. He says, Mr. President, your, your government is falling apart with all these leaks. We must create the plumbers. And that was the end of him. Jerry Ford, you know the, the quote about him from Johnson? That he was so stupid that he couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. That was too much for him. Said Lyndon B. Johnson about Gerald Ford. So uh, he's actually, his roots go precisely to that horrible part of Michigan that's giving the world so much trouble, right? The, uh, the coast, the west coast of Michigan. He's a little bit further north. I think he's more like Grand Rapids than Benton Harbor and so forth. But um, that area out there seems to be uh, quite problematic. And, of course, uh, the bane of his existence was he had Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, so there were two or three assassination attempts, right? Sarah Jane Moore, Lynette Squeaky Fromm. Why that? Because you're, if your Vice President is Nelson Rockefeller, it's better, better not to go outdoors. <laughs> now, Carter is a very extreme case, right? Carter is one of the most extreme cases. Um, what he, when he says he was born again, what he actually means is that he had a nervous breakdown uh, in the time after his mother died and after he lost the governorship of Georgia in an election. Right? He was defeated at the polls. He had a nervous breakdown, and that's where he gets the, the um, born again. If I just may go back, Nixon, Nixon was looked at by the ruling elite 
to judge could could he be allowed to become president and originally they said no he he is too intact but then uh, when his mother died and he lost the election in California he also had a nervous breakdown and after that he was considered qualified in other words at least one nervous breakdown is necessary so that they can play on whatever your complexes are and you can you probably include Johnson in that too okay now I uh, was once uh, traveling in uh, Minnesota, Mayo Clinic, and uh, picked up the local paper. This was about, uh, it was right after his term ended, so it was 1989, and uh, he was in town. Ronald Reagan was in town. He was in Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic. What was happening with him? He was getting operated on for water on the brain, which is a very debilitating uh, thing. So he went through significant parts of his presidency with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and water on the brain. It's reported that in an audience with Pope John Paul II, he fell asleep. Um, his method was to have these cards. Anyway, he'd have these cards. And he'd have a meeting with congressmen and say, Good morning, Senator. How are you? Thanks for coming to the White House to visit me today. Uh, you see where I'm going. How long can a society survive when these sorts of people are put in? And, of course, the idea is that he's going to be a puppet, which most of the time he was. Now, we've now entered the area where uh, it's easier to follow because they've been thoroughly exposed, as in this book, The Unauthorized Biography. He also, George Bush, the elder, had serious problems uh, with his thyroid Right, this thyroid storm. Right, he had rage explosions. He had all kinds of serious uh, problems, hissing and so forth. Anyway, there's, there's a. I commend your attention to this uh, this book, which has a significant uh, uh, description of it. He uh, he was so manic and frenetic that he didn't play golf the way most people do, where the thing to look out for is the golf score. With him, it was, how fast could you do 18 holes? And he called it cart polo. So he'd come up in the cart, <laughs> jump out, hit the ball, get back in the cart, drive off, and the goal was to finish it as fast as you could. Okay. Now, <laughs> I, uh, picking up a uh, supermarket tabloid the other day, we hear about him as the horn dog in chief. Uh, the, the ruling elite looked at him, and they said, we'll control him the same way we wanted to control Kennedy. You know, because they thought that Kennedy would be a playboy, sex maniac, and so forth. And they said, here's another sex maniac. Right? He can't get through a day unless he's got some woman telling him how great he is because he doesn't feel like he's very great at all. Right? He feels like he's quite, quite inferior. So um, talented actor like Reagan. Right? Reagan was really a nasty guy, but he he was able to cover it up. When you look at him, Reagan is governor of California. He's really vicious. But he learned to go for this avuncular thing. In this case, it's the southern populist right, that people uh, became familiar with. But abolished welfare. In other words, he destroyed one of the key provisions of the Social Security Act of 1935, aid to families with dependent children. 1999, Graham Leach Bliley wipes out a Glass-Steagall, which in those days was a kind of protection. One of the things I'm going to argue is it's too late for Glass-Steagall. The derivatives are everywhere. That horse is out of the barn. You've got to tax them. You've got to outlaw them. Glass-Steagall won't do it. And then in 2000, 
the Commodity Exchange Modernization Act, I think it's called, that simply deregulates all derivatives. All derivatives are deregulated. And that leads you right to the crash of 2008. So he was ultimately controllable. In the case of Bush the Younger, uh, the story, I guess, is dry drunk. Someone who is an alcoholic remains an alcoholic, but uh, has it under control at least sometimes, right? The famous scene where his wife says, you got to choose between Jack Daniels and me. Um, so he uh, also fits of rage. There's a whole book called uh, Bush on the Couch. Uh, that's highly interesting. Um, and generally speaking, uh, controlled, certainly controlled, controlled through family tradition and so forth. Also, a very interesting pattern, had to have a group of, of adoring women around him, all women in the White House, right, that, including one that he tried to put on the Supreme Court. Now, in the case of Obama, we have not one but two uh, important sources. Um, well, with Obama, it's too much in the, in the face of all of us. Um, I, uh, I wish I'd shown you the back of this book. I've got a cartoon back there where you see Obama debating Hillary. And uh, Hillary says, oh, I'm going to be a hawk. I'm going to attack Iran. And Obama says to her, what, attack Iran? You're crazy. And then Zbigniew Brzezinski comes out and grabs a hold of his ear. And Obama starts ranting, we have to attack Russia. And lo and behold, look where we are now. It, it, it hasn't been a linear path, but under the Obama administration, with, I believe, significant input from Zbigniew Brzezinski and some others, we are now in the biggest crisis uh, with uh, Russia, and it was done on the basis of uh, the postmodern coup, meaning the color revolution. So if you get this book, you've got a description of the color revolutions in quite a bit of detail, the Albert Einstein Institute... Uh, Colonel Robert Helvey, Gene Sharp, and all these people. Uh, and then this is the constellation of people around him, including Bernardine Dawn with her whip <laughs> from SDS. Is anybody in SDS? Uh, her, uh, Bill Ayers with his weatherman bomb, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the goddamn America pastor, and so forth. So, and, and indeed, the Democratic Party is pretty much you know, on the, on the deck after losing, what, 70, 80 members of Congress under this guy? I mean, it really has happened. Now, of course, today, I have to add, today there are people around Obama who want war much more than he does. So we don't go around attacking Obama because that's stupid. You've got to attack Petraeus, got to attack Allen, Kerry, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, right? Those are the people you've really got to watch out for. So in some ways, Obama's a lesser evil, but then, if we look at the entirety of this administration from a historical point of view, it's a disaster, right? It's horrendous. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Political Economy of the American System, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. There was some stuff in there about those presidents that I didn't know. Yes, it's, uh, it, it's unfortunate that we have um, historians who appear on television, uh, people who qualify as presidential historians like Michael Beschloss, for example, and what they're offering uh, some some pretty 
pallid uh, apologetics for the existing system. In other words, you're not allowed to know if a president was a psychopath or or anything like that. Right? They try to paper it over with some kind of presidential respectability. And again, the point of this is not simply to um, to yuck it up over how bad the presidents have been, right? Because that's that's a dime a dozen. But again, to try to get people to face the fact that unless better leaders emerge somehow, then uh, the, the condition of our country and, and the world becomes uh, rather desperate. And, uh, you know, a certain quality of leadership would say, no war in Syria and no war in Ukraine either, and instead let's get down to the business of world economic recovery. But you notice the, the Obama administration lost the last election. The Democrats lost the la last election because they did not have a job program. They had no approach to job creation. And you can do this a number of ways. The best way to do it is to get on the phone with the Federal Reserve and say, guess what? You're going to open a $5 trillion credit stimulus window. You did that for AIG. You did that for the zombie banks. Now you're going to do it for American working people. And we want 30 million new productive jobs in infrastructure and production, scientific research, so on down the line. Obama hasn't, uh, hasn't done it. But any real president, any day of the week, could pick up that phone and say, Janet Yellen, guess what? You're, you're going to become the uh, national bank, not, not the bank for Wall Street parasites uh, only. So I think that's, uh, that's one of the outcomes. Yeah, but, yes, yeah, so we've had some pretty bad leadership, but we're still here, and, uh, and it's time now for uh, some kind of a change. Because there, there is no doubt, uh, modern economics has been shaped by greed, in particular, um, beyond any beyond any doubt. In other words, how can you have an economy theory of economics where they say, well, uh, one of the premises of economics is that anybody who really wants a job can get one. Well, what do you what do you do if there are uh, 25, 30 percent unemployment, as in Greece? Right? That's a that's a depression. That's not the fact, the idea that somebody's lazy. It's the fact that there's a world economic depression. Many analogies are being made about the political shakeup in Greece and political movements in Spain. Could you talk about what is going on in Spain? Well, just briefly, uh, it's that, that not all of these uh, so-called anti-austerity parties are created equal, right? First of all, you have the right-wing ones, right? You have the UK Independence Party with Farage. This is a reactionary outfit. They're xenophobic. They're anti-immigrant. Uh, then you've got the Alternatives for Germany. Their their big uh, campaign point in the last European elections was to kick out Greece, that is to scapegoat Greece for the European depression caused by the European Central Bank and Merkel's uh, deflationary policies. There's Beppe Grillo in Italy, who has turned out to be uh, a political incompetent. He's got, he's got people leaving his uh, parliamentary factions, uh, the, the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate. People are leaving all the time. Uh, Grillo is going more and more towards an anti-immigrant stance. So uh, certainly the right-wing ones, I think we can, uh, we can agree that these are not authentic um, alternatives to the current banking system. And indeed... Tsipras, uh, the Greek prime minister now, head of, head of Syriza, had said those right-wing populists are not alternatives to the system. They are the reserve army of the system. 
And that, I think, would extend to somebody like Ron Paul, Rand Paul today. They're not against the Wall Street system. They're the last line of defense of the Wall Street system. Because, again, their program is always the most extreme austerity, the kind of thing that will warm the heart of any uh, Wall Street speculator. I, I take uh, Syriza to be an authentic uh, movement. Right? You can look at the, the political background of the people uh, involved, and you get a sense that somebody like Tsipras has been fighting for something all of his life. Uh, and I think he's, uh, you know, whatever you can say about tactics and everything, generally speaking, this is, this is the best we've seen so far. Now, the Podemos party in Spain, unfortunately, has some question marks. Let's put it that way. And in particular, the top uh, leadership, there's this guy called Pablo Iglesias. And the question is, is this an authentic leader? In the case of uh, Pablo Iglesias, I listened to his speech at the Puerta del Sol on Saturday afternoon. And I must say, this is, this is very weak compared to the speeches from Cipras, right? With, with Syriza, you get, you know, tax financial transactions, cut the debt in half, force the European Central Bank to support the uh, infrastructure projects put forward by governments. And from, from Pablo Iglesias, we get this stuff about, well, we're dreamers, but we take our dreams very seriously. Um, well, where's the beef? What's the program? What are you committed to? And I'm afraid in the case of Podemos, this is very vague. The other thing we would point to is the the media, right? The media have vilified Tsipras and Syriza that, that they're the end of the world, they're chaos, delirium, uh, terrible abyss. But in the case of, uh, of Podemos, it's the opposite, right? That they're glamorous, that they're charismatic, and so forth. And especially the Huffington Post group uh, with the various language versions, including the Spanish one, they have been very, very forthcoming and uh, supportive of, uh, of Podemos. So that puts a real serious uh, question mark on it, because we know this general idea that there's an ideological convergence, at the very least, between the Huffington group and somebody like Soros, right? This is generally the same kind of outlook. So I think we have to worry about that. I, I did a little count, right? The, the Huffington Post had done 8,500 stories on Podemos, but 2,200 on Syriza. And Syriza is now in power, so you, there's a certain uh, a question mark that is raised. And I would invite Pablo Iglesias, if he, uh, if he wants to get rid of the question mark, to come out with a concrete program. You just mentioned Syriza in 2012 had a 40-point program that included getting control of the European Central Bank and forcing them to cough up credit, to finance a recovery, to finance full employment. Uh, there's no, nothing detailed like that uh, coming from Podemos. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been The Political Economy of the American System, Part 2. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History. 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity. Visit his website at tarpley.net. 
Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner. To make comments or order copies of shows, email me at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and the launch of our new website.